I just got to tell you, we're talking about a subject I can't stand talking about. I can't get away from it. I can't stand talking about it. And this is the beginning. This is week one of a two-part series called The Problem of Pain. And The Problem of Pain is something I studied a lot when I was in grad school. For a year and a half, I, I focused exclusively on philosophy of religion. And The Problem of Evil is a subcategory of, of philosophy of religion. I actually took a whole three-credit class on The Problem of Evil one time. And it was so crazy because the professor, like, you know, class one, walks in and on the blackboard he writes, the problem of evil is the most formidable argument against theism today. And then he spent two and a half hours dissecting that, that, that statement. You know, and I, I can't stand that kind of class. Like, I like classes with history and all sorts of stuff. But this is, this is the most nitpicky class and focusing on the problem of evil. And after a while, I just got so tired of it and... Let me just map out a little bit for you, kind of the whole idea here, and I'll show you a little bit why talking about the problem of evil just is, is difficult. And the problem of evil is formulated basically two different ways. There's a third person aspect to it, and then there's a first person aspect to it. And the third person aspect is, how do you reconcile that an all-loving, all capable and all-present God could allow gratuitous evil or gratuitous suffering to exist in the world. If he's everywhere, if he's capable, if he's capable and if he's benevolent, why would he not intervene and take away pain and suffering and evil? And so that's basically the problem of evil from a third-person perspective. And the, the whole idea is, if these things are going on, we've got the category of evil and suffering, and we've got kind of the nature of God, how are these things to be reconciled so that we can actually believe that God exists as we formulate it? That's the third person kind of objective way of looking at it. The first person way of looking at it, how would that be different? Anybody? First person would just be, um, my life sucks. (laughs) Um, My life sucks and I'm in pain. And where is God in the midst of this? How can there be a God in the midst of this? How can I trust that a God would actually love me or that, that God is loving in the midst of my being in pain? And what's so hard is these two different ways of, of coming at the problem of evil are so radically different at an emotional level. The third person one is books and it's, and it's commentators and it's debates and it's saying, hey, is this a rational belief to hold and to, and to have the whole idea that there is a God, that He is all-powerful, all-loving, and, and omnipresent? Okay, it's, it's very objective. And so C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says uh, a very objective-sounding thing. He says, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf and dying world. So pain has utility. God, God has it there for a reason. It has utility. It's a part of His plan Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf and dying world. And then C.S. Lewis, 20 years later, when his wife dies, writes a book under a pseudonym, N.W. de Klerk, and, and it's this whole journal of him going through his pain with his wife who's died. And you can buy that book now under the title, A Grief Observed. And he, he says in that book, after all these years, my faith turned out to be a house of cards. My faith turned out to be a house of cards. 
Now, of course, he, he kind of moved on, worked through his grief, and, and put his faith back together. But you see, these are two totally different things. If this C.S. Lewis had talked to this C.S. Lewis, what do you think this guy would have said? He would have said, you're a callous jerk. You know, don't talk to me that way. I'm in pain here. And the, the philosopher over here, if this person had been talking to him, the philosopher would have said, your subjectivity isn't what we're wrestling with. We're wrestling with reason and rationality and whether these two things are actually logically compatible. And, and, it's, and so I hate the problem of evil. I kind of walked away from it for, for years and didn't want to talk about it. I've just started talking about it a lot more in the last year. But I hate it. For that reason right there, I once was asked, I used to do when I was a college pastor, I used to do these things called skeptics balls. And the the format of the skeptics ball was I would just come and and sit on a stool and any question was fair game, history, um, economics, politics, I don't know. I mean, I might not have an answer, I might have a bad answer, I might give a short answer, but it would just be answering real life questions, world religions, faith, Christianity, Bible, whatever, and I would answer, give an answer, and then people would be able to ask a follow-up question. And so I did this when I was a college pastor, and then we started doing it at the other church, the last church that I was at. And I remember in a, being in a room of 120 adults, kind of doing this format, Q&A-type format. And somebody asked me about the problem of evil, and they asked it from this perspective. And as I'm gathering my thoughts, I looked out. And I saw a girl there who was about 24, and I knew that she had been a victim of gang rape and 10 years prior, and her whole life had gone sideways from there. And in that, that moment, I just, I mean, I, there was nothing. I had nothing. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to wrestle with that without doing damage to kind of one category or the other, the person who's not in pain but is struggling rationally versus the person who is in pain sitting there who, who could so easily feel stepped on or like I'm making light of, of the pain. And so it's just a really difficult topic to wrestle with, but the problem is, is it's there. It's always been there. It's been there from the beginning, and it's it's... It's so close to us, and it has so, so much to do with that relationship with God and our ability to grow into it, that if we don't talk about it, we just are kind of ignoring the elephant in the room. And so we're going to talk about it this morning, and then next week we're going to get into a very practical discussion of it from the book of Habakkuk. But I want to talk a little bit more about these categories right now. The third person category, if you're talking about the problem of evil, um, you're doing it in what's... what's the word is, we've got it on the screen, but it's theodicy. A theodicy is basically a defense of God. It's talking about how can you reconcile the, the justice of God. And it comes from the Greek word theos and dk, And basically means the justice of God. Or when you're talking about it more plainly, it's, it's how to justify God in a sense. And it was coined by Leibniz, a philosopher, back in 1710. And so ever since then, when theologians are, are writing or you know, going into this whole thing of trying to explain how we keep these things in tension, it's called a theodicy. They're, in some sense, trying to figure out how to justify God in, in these things. And I put it up on the board because I wanted you to see Leibniz's hair because that way you'd understand why he was writing about pain and suffering. 
Uh, but it's a theodicy. Now, this is, the, this is philosophy here. And the interesting thing is in, in uh, 1955, something happened, kind of a big event in philosophy. A guy by the name of J.L. Mackey formulated an argument against God from, the, from evil that was a deductive argument. And you're like, wow, that sounds earth-shattering again. Um, the reason it was a big deal was because up until then, the arguments against God were inductive arguments. Okay? A deductive argument basically has this behind it, that if the premises are true and the conclusion follows logically from the premises, then the conclusion is guaranteed. And so the way he's formulating his argument, it would be a logical necessity that God did not exist. And so he formulates it this way. And his basic argument was, if God really is all-powerful, then he could have created a universe where free creatures could have always chosen good, had the motivation to always choose good. It would have been within his power. And so that kind of became this huge thing. And there weren't a lot of Christian philosophers back in the, in the, in the mid-50s, 60s. Christian philosophy really started coming along in the, the 70s, exploded in the 80s, a lot of people being influenced by Francis Schaeffer. And, but in the mid-70s, a guy by the name of Alvin Plantinga, and he's probably the, one of the top philosophical brains of, of our generation. He's out of Notre Dame. And he came back and did an equally monumentous thing in the world of philosophy. He once and for all ended the deductive formulation of the problem of evil. So he responds to Mackey, and he basically defends the pro- that, that it's rational to believe in God based on these things. And he answers Mackey and says that God is limited even though he's all-powerful. And you're like, really? What does that mean? And what Planning argued is even God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 5. Or even God can't create a married bachelor. And when we talk, when we talk about God being all-powerful... We're not talking about everything's fair game. We're talking about he's got all the power to create, and he's created a world of logic and non-contradiction. And so planning starts talking about this and says, there's some things God couldn't do, and he couldn't have created maybe the best possible of all universes where free creatures always choose evil because of the nature of freedom. And that sounds really whatever. But he goes on and he talks about, and then... Mackey, you also didn't take into account that there could be, that it's very rational to believe, that there are free angels and demons, agents or, or, or beings outside of the finite kind of realm, the, the material realm, that can have an influence in evil, in people doing things, in nature even. And then he kind of restated again in a strong way the whole idea that we also don't know what's coming, and when you put that in the balance... There's a justification that comes to God if the, the afterlife, what comes next, heaven, it really is kind of a paradise-type situation compared to the brief, temporary troubles that we have now. And he kind of reformulates that. And so what was amazing is you got this Christian philosopher, and everybody across the spectrum realizes there's no longer a deductive argument from the problem of evil. It's all about probabilities now. And this is why I started hating the problem of evil. And I'll show you in just a second. But probabilities means, um, given this, given this, given this, and and let's put it into a formula, it's like 60% more probable that there isn't a God. And then the Christian will come back. No, 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 my formulas make it that it's 55% more probable. And it just gets ridiculous. Here's what it looks like from an atheistic philosopher. 
And you see like the math equations there. That's actually symbolic logic and they're assigning different values to different kinds of things and trying to argue out that one is more probable than the other. And it's just, it's, I mean, doesn't that just give you a headache? So the, the problem of evil now has moved into a realm where it's all probabilistic arguments and percentages back and forth. And it's really an interesting thing that way. And the Christian philosophers are basically saying, you just can't do that because so much is, is going to be factored in that's beyond our understanding. And they use the phrase beyond our ken. Okay? And, and the word ken there means beyond our understanding. It's not a reference to me. Um, Beyond our ken. And, and so that's the third person formulation of the problem of evil. It's, it's kind of just trying to figure out when you factor everything in, is it rational or more rational to believe that there is a God or vice versa? On the first person side, what do we do over here to deal with the problem of evil? What do we do when we're hurting and we're doubting and our faith is tested? I mean, it's real practical stuff. It's, it's grief groups. It's, it's listening to things. It's, it's trying to get more information that will somehow change our, our mental states and help us come to a different perspective or point of view to alleviate the pain or the suffering. Or we just go for numbing it. Or we just deal with the felt quality of suffering. And those are the two categories. Now, the thing that that really kind of brought me back into thinking about the problem of evil was a Christian philosopher by the name of Eleanor Stump. And I really like what she did. She, she kind of approached this, and she's talking about the third person and the first person. In the third person, you're talking about, is there a God? Logically, is, is there God? That's really messy writing. Okay. Um, in the first person... What are you doing? You're basically asking the same question. Is there a God? And, and, and it's got a relationalness to it. It's I'm grasping. I need something. I need to be grounded here. I'm all alone in my pain. But they're, they're both asking the same question. And she says, over here we're looking for logic. Over here we're looking for help or assistance. And there's one thing that would solve both of them. And so she comes in and she says... Let's stop talking about third person, first person. Let's start talking about second person solution to the problem of evil. Now, what's second person? Second person is conversational. It's not disinterested third person looking at something. It's not first person with your own mental states. Second person is really more about dialogue. And so Eleanor Stump's, Stump uses Job to kind of talk about that. And, and I'll just read a little bit about Job and kind of let's talk about his story for a second. But Job comes into this suffering and he gets with his friends. And basically what they're doing is they keep flip-flopping from first to third person. Um, hey, you know what? You must have sinned and done something against God. And you know what, Job? I'm tired of your whining. And, you know, Job, maybe whatever. One of your ancestors did something, you know. Hey, Job, have you thought about... And they just keep flip-flopping back and forth. And Job is left in the middle of his pain going, this isn't working. It's not working. And so he starts crying out to God and kind of pleading with God and saying, I've got questions that you need to answer, God. You have to justify yourself. How can you allow this to go on? It's gratuitous suffering, gratuitous 
pain and evil. And finally, after 37 chapters, I mean, doesn't that kind of ring true to our life? Um, Don't we usually go through 37 chapters of suffering before we really maybe sometimes get to those breakthrough moments or get to the point where God speaks to us or we get clarity? I mean, I just kind of find that that's true, isn't it? Pain and suffering is, is, is an endurance sport. It, it never is as quick as we think it is. But after 37 chapters, God finally speaks. And listen to what it says here. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the, the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. And who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And then I think God starts picking up speed. On um, what were its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And God just starts going like that. And I think, man, that first phrase, brace yourself like a man and I will question you. Now, as, I was, as I was kind of ruminating on that, I was like, you know, I, I, if Justin came up to me and said, Ken, brace yourself like a man. Look, I think I'd know what to do. You know, get a good base. <laughs> um, lower my center of gravity. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to push back on whatever's coming. If God himself says to you, brace yourself, what do you, what do, you do to that, right? And so God continues on, and then something really funny happens in the beginning of chapter 40. What we always do when we feel a little bit silly or a little bit stupid or a little bit out of place, we, we open our mouths and kind of in, interject something. And so Job kind of interrupts God. I mean, isn't that kind of funny? I mean, it's one of the few places in Scripture where you see somebody interrupt God. I don't think God was done because he goes on for a couple more chapters. But at, at the beginning of chapter 40, Job interrupts God and says, um, and Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And then God cuts off Job again and says this, Brace yourself like a man, and I'm going to question you. I'm not done yet. Would you discredit my justice? We're getting into the heart of theodicy here. It's amazing to me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, or can you voice thunder like His? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. You're below me. Um, you're below me, Job. You don't quite understand everything. Listen to what he kind of concludes with here. Chapter 41, verse 11. God says this. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? I don't have to answer every little thing. Just like, you know, I find this emotion a lot. I mean, my, my three-year-old now, you know, is in the why stage. 
You know, she's putting like dirt in her mouth. Hey, don't do that. Why? <laughs> um, she's drinking bath water. Hey, don't do that. Why, Daddy? And it's just like you're just so frustrated. Just listen to me. Don't do it. I don't have to answer why I'm your dad, you know? I mean, don't ask me questions. Just do what I say, you know? And then Job goes on and he says, okay, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. See, here's the interesting thing. When we talk about theodicy, we, we start to give answers over here on a third person point of view. We talk about, you know what? If, if someone has to do their chores or do hard labor before they go to Disneyland at the end of the day, we can all understand that that balances out. And if this life is like the chores, and then we're going to Disneyland in the, in the afterlife, well, then, then rationally, we can kind of understand how that balances out. Does that make sense? In Isaiah, Isaiah 55, it's on the board. But Isaiah 55 says this. We quoted it last week, and I think my card fell out of where I had it marked. I'll just read it off the board. It says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so even in Scripture, we see this kind of answer that God is bigger and above it. And there's probably something else coming that, that, that balances the scales. And, it's, and, and it begins to bring up this idea of an analogy. And let me explain the difference between something. You can know something by experience or you can kind of know it by analogy. If you've never tasted ice cream, I can explain ice cream to you by analogy. Well, it's kind of buttery, and it's kind of like sweets and sugary, and it's kind of soft and, and melts, you know, in the mouth, and it's smooth feeling, et cetera, et cetera. And the person can go, oh, okay, I kind of get it. It doesn't taste like pasta. Okay? It's not like pasta. I get it. It's not like steak. Okay, I kind of get it. I, I know that it's not like that. It's more like this over here. That's a far cry um, from actually having tasted ice cream, isn't it? So analogies help us get to a certain point. But what's called knowledge by acquaintance, first-person experience of actually tasted something, that's much different. And this whole idea of God's ways being higher than our ways, we kind of go, okay, I get it. I mean, I, I have kids or I once was a kid, and I see how things that I don't understand kind of kind of turn into things that I do understand when circumstances change. And surely this life could be like that. But here's the difference. There's nothing in my life that would give me the experience of what heaven is going to be like, what the eternal life is, what the afterlife is after this life. There's nothing in my life that even helps me under, understand or, or fathom time that could stretch out like that on and on and on and on and on. Like, I've, I don't have any knowledge by acquaintance. 
when we talk about heaven that way, we're talking about ice cream that we've never tasted. And it's really difficult when you're really dealing with pain. And is there a God? And is there an afterlife? And how do I reconcile all this? The analogy all of a sudden doesn't really work at my first person felt experience. Sure, it seems rational, but is it true? I haven't tasted it. I don't really know. I don't really understand. I I can't grasp it. And it's tough that way. And so when we get to Job, it's fascinating what Job says there. Job says this, 42 verse 5. My ears had heard of you. Okay, I kind of got it over here. There's a God. This is the way God is. All this other stuff. It made sense rationally, all this. My ears had had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. It was an analogy before. Now I've been acquainted with you. I've met you. I've interacted with you. The third person was there. It didn't quite work at the first person. It left me feeling and wondering. But now all of a sudden, I know. That's the funny thing about it, is God didn't answer, really, Job's specific problems. God didn't, God didn't take it point by point and say, okay, um, complaint 1.23, here's my answer to that. And really, Job, let's be honest, my justice stays intact against your complaint number 4.536.3, whatever. God doesn't do that. He just says, Job, here I am. And I'm big. And I'm big. And you're not. And he says it very matter-of-factly. And you know what? Job concludes, I'm answered. Because here's the thing. In counseling, I'm not the best pastoral counselor guy. It's just not my shtick. But I really care about hurting people that come into my office. Like, I don't go looking for it, but when someone comes in and sits in front of you, you all of a sudden just go, man, this, this is a person, and they're hurting. And something ought to be able to help them. And how can I f- somehow, whatever, organize or network or listen or just be there and help them that way? And so you kind of sit there when you're in counseling and you listen and people share and they're hurting but you begin to learn after a while this, this truth, that the presenting problem, the presenting problem is not usually the real problem. The presenting problem is not usually the real problem. You know, a married couple comes in and it's, you know, he, he doesn't fill the ice cube trays up. Okay, that's the presenting problem. The real problem is I really don't think he loves me. And that's a symbolic thing for me. If he, if he loved me, he'd fill the ice cube trays up. This isn't me because I have an ice maker, so don't lead into that. <laughs> if somebody comes in and they, they say, you know what, I, I'm really struggling with pain. I've got this going on in my life, and this is really my, my issue, and it needs to be solved. I, on a subconscious level, that's not the real issue. That's the presenting problem. The real problem, I don't think, is pain. The real problem is something called 
And I might spell this wrong, which would be wild for it to sit here the whole time misspelled. Rick Gerhardt, two N's or one? Hit in S. I don't know. The hiddenness of God. See, the problem of pain is a category and it's a subject. There's another theological topic called the hiddenness of God. And I think pain is our presenting problem. And I think our our actual problem is the hiddenness of God. Because the minute God says, hi, Ken, or Ken, my issue of does God exist goes away. Logically, I don't even care anymore. You know, you guys can just write all your articles and symbolic math logic, and I'm not going to read any of it because I've I've connected with God, and I don't need to read this. And you know what? I might still not understand this specific pain, instance of pain, or this specific instance of suffering. But I know that you're there. I know that you're obviously big. And my trust factor, my, my faith factor, my hope factor has now all of a sudden gone up. And I can, I can sit in that pain, so to speak, or endure in that pain. What, what, what Lauren said earlier, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I can, I can lean hard on God because I at least know that he's there. It's no longer thinking, what is ice cream like? It's knowledge by acquaintance. God is there. God is big. Now I can trust him. And so the presenting problem is the problem of evil and pain. And how do I make sense of it? The real issue is the hiddenness of God. So let's talk about that for just a second. The hiddenness of God. The fact that God is not writing across the skies, I am and I exist all the time. Like he's just not writing it. Or maybe he's writing it in a different way. It's kind of funny I once in L.A. was driving somewhere, and there was a big sky rider, like the whole half hour I was driving somewhere in the, the streets of L.A. And it wrote this big thing, and it was L, and then it was a big O, and then it was another O, and I'm like, La, and then Lou, and I'm, I'm driving on the 57, I'm like, you know, where, what's, what's it going to be? And, you know, clear blue skies, and and I'm just waiting and waiting and then nothing more. And I start getting frustrated because if you ever like had that tension of not knowing and then it's just, you can't just leave Lou in the sky. I mean, what's going on? And, you know, did he run out of smoke or they just didn't pay him enough to finish the word or I'm just like going crazy here. And it, it literally it took me four days to figure it out. And I, I, I mean, I was, I was angry. And what it was, it was, it was the new James Bond movie was coming out that weekend, and it was 007. And I just, you know. And so I, I do think that it's probably written in the sky a little bit more like that, and we just don't quite see it. Justin's song that he wrote this week talked about the stars and the sky, and, and I think it is written there maybe a little bit more than we, what we realize if our paradigm was different. But here's the thing, God is hidden. Now, is that a problem? Logically, when you go into court and you're going to argue a case, there's different rules by which evidence is kind of weighed. And one of the marks of truth, one of the marks that you look for, for something to actually be rock solid in terms of testimony, uh, to have veracity, to have truth, is consistency. Is consistency. And the interesting thing about this hiddenness of God is, that from the beginning of the garden, God purpose I mean, it was just clear as day. God says, I'm, I'm separating myself from you. 
I'm removing myself from you. I'm going to force you to have to search for me and to look for me with all your heart. I'm not going to chase you around like a doting mom. I'm going to be removed from you. The whole reason Jesus says, you know, it's better if I go after he died so that the Holy Spirit can come was because the whole idea of the Holy Spirit was that he could be with believers, all believers at all times and all places. And that's so much better than just having one guy three-dimensionally in one place. And Jesus says, it's better if I go so that the Holy Spirit can come. This idea that, that God could be with everyone. But, but God is always, God the Father has always been removed that way. And it says in James, if you draw near to me, I will then draw near to you. That echoes Jeremiah. And it talks about in the Psalms that, that God says to people, because of your sin, I'm going to turn my face from you and I'm going to walk away. And you see people crying out, even the prophets sometimes. God speaks to them kind of one day, and then the next day they're confused and they're crying out and the answers just aren't as ready or as quick or as there as they, they think they should be. And Jesus doesn't say God's going to just chase you around. He says, if you ask, you will receive. And if you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be open. That there's a sense in which God isn't going to be a doting mom. And we do have to search and, and struggle and labor and pursue God with everything that we've got. David's famous thing, you know, as a deer pants for water. Kim hates that song, by the way. So now I feel weird having said that phrase. But it's scripture. Kim's wrong. The, the, uh, David, David says, man, there should be such a yearning, such a passion, such a drivenness. And we see it from the, the beginning that God turns them away from the garden. And then people, in, in some sense, are on their own. And there's a barrier. It's there all throughout scripture. It's consistent. And so we look at that, and whether we like it or not is a different story, but it's consistent. God has said, this is how I'm going to be. I, I preached a sermon the, the Sunday after the uh, Hurricane Katrina. I don't know if you remember that. I mean, it was pretty gnarly. You see people on their roofs that have had to, like, break through the shingles in their roofs to get out on top of the roofs so that they could be rescued. It was, it was crazy that whole week after Katrina. And, and I remember preaching a sermon and we're wrestling with this whole idea of, man, this is crazy, natural disasters like this. And what do you make of it? And the title of the sermon, I called it Between the Gardens. You've got the Garden of Eden, and God is walking with people. And there is no sin, and it's not a fallen world at that point in time. And there's a togetherness, and it's, it's perfect. And now we're here, and God says, there's going to be another time where the tree of life is there and the, the stream of, of living water flows and, and there's not going to be a, a tear in an eye and we're going to be united in some kind of a crazy way that we can't even understand right now and, and it's going to be whole again there. And right now we're between the gardens. We're between the gardens. And, and God has said this. And so we can struggle with the hiddenness of God. It's a different problem than the problem of pain. But I think it's the real problem. It's, it's not the presenting problem, it's the actual problem, is we just need to hear from God and know that he's there. The, my sister's a lawyer, and she sent me a, a thing, a senator from, I, f- I forget where it was, senator from Illinois, I think, um, brought a lawsuit against God. <laughs> and so he, he brought a lawsuit against God to make a point or whatever, and this is kind of the lawsuit she 
she forwarded it on to me because she thought I'd think it was interesting. I've had it for like a year or two. But it's really interesting. I was going back this week and looking through it again. And look at this next page. One of the things he says is, despite reasonable efforts to bring this case against the defendant who is God, and then he puts in parentheses, come out, come out wherever you are. And I, I think what's funny here is for the last couple of years, I've always said to people, we have a hide and seek God. That's not an argument against the existence of God. That's just a, a matter of what he's declared in Scripture is that, that we have a hide and seek God. He's hidden and removed and we're supposed to seek. We have a hide and seek God. And so as we talk about the problem of pain and we come to it and we're struggling, is there a God? Logically, is there a God? I'm in pain. What we really need is to have a conversation with God and through that come to knowledge by acquaintance, experience that you know what, there is a God. And he's there. And even if I don't have all the answers, I can now trust him. I can lean on that. I have a measure of assurance that will allow me to walk forward and hopefully turn an eye towards when there will be no tear, when everything will be made right, when I'll be reunited or united in some sense that's going to be amazing. And what's really at issue here is the second person thing we need to encounter with God. Now, there's something in Celtic Christianity that I think is helpful here. How, how do we go about pursuing God? If the real issue is we need an encounter with God, how do we go about doing that? And in Celtic Christianity, that whole kind of tradition, there's a phrase, and the phrase is this. It's called thin moments. You're like, ooh, that doesn't sound very fancy again. Um, I think it's kind of cool, though. Thin moments. And thin moments in the Celtic tradition are moments when kind of that barrier between God and man is not as thick, and it was thin. And you were able, or someone was able to have an encounter with God like Job did, and connect, knowledge by acquaintance, have an experience. It might only happen, what, once, um, twice, ten times in a lifetime, or maybe more, varying degrees. And the Celtic kind of tradition said there's these thin moments. And and I think that there are. I've had them in my own life, and I'm sure a lot of you have had them in your own life uh, as well. And And here's the thing, if that's really rock bottom where we need to run is an encounter with God. In the Psalms, it talks about God has like wings, and he doesn't really. So why does it say that? I mean, God is spirit. He's not flesh and blood. Why does it say he has wings? It says he has wings because it's drawing a parallel and saying God has the ability to to cover you and to, to hold you and to protect you. And, and to love on you that way, nurture you, and that's our God. And it uses the wing kind of to help us get there again, right? And so we've got to get to these thin moments so that we can experience that God really is that kind of a way, that he really will comfort us, and that we, we can cast our anxieties on him, and, and he will bring us comfort, and will renew our strength. And so we've got to experience that, so we need these thin moments, and the American church is not good at that. We're good at events. We're we're good at shuffling from one place to another, to another, to another. We're good at questions. We're we're good at stuff like building fancy buildings and getting bigger with things. I mean, we're good at a lot of things, but we're not really culturally good at quiet and solitude and discipline and being alone. But really, that's, that's the real issue. It's not the presenting problem. It's the real problem. 
And we've got to be able to somehow move out, find quiet space, find those thin places. The Celts talked about thin moments and also thin places. I don't know about you, but when I go out in the mountains or go hiking or get by a stream, those are thin places for me. Jesus went up on mountains and Moses went up on mountains and you see different people, people going out into the desert and those would be called thin places, places you can go to kind of search for God and try and hear what God would be saying to you. And so we somehow have to find these thin moments and we have to find these thin places and we have to connect with God because in that connection, in one word of reassurance from God, all the philosophy just disappears. And all the existential loneliness and isolation and what do I do? I mean, I'm crying just buckets into my couch every night. I'm just crying. And who's hearing that? And I'm all alone. And and how do I move forward? I'm a, a skipping record and I can't move on with my life because I can't get beyond what what this is. I can't let go of it in order to keep moving on. And so I'm shutting myself down emotionally to people or my kids or to my dreams, because this thing right here is a barrier. I'm just crying buckets, and somehow one word of comfort from God is what blows all that away. It's not the third person. It's not the first person. It's not pain, the presenting problem. It's an encounter with God that we need that comes through prayer. It comes through silence. It comes through listening. It comes through discipline. It comes through crying again. It, it says in Exodus, and we'll close with this, Exodus, where God comes and meets Moses out in the desert. In in chapter 3, verse 7, it says this. It says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. It's really interesting. It doesn't say I've heard their prayers. It doesn't say I've heard like... Um, their questions or their philosophies or the books they're writing. He says, I've heard their crying and I'm concerned about their suffering. And I think there's something we've got to pull together here and realize that, that in the midst of our pain, what we don't need is answers as to why this specific instance of pain is just What we need is the presence of God that grounds that he does have a plan and that he is higher than us, we are lower, and that we can trust him. We need just God to show up enough for us to understand that he hears crying, he responded to those tears, and that he cares about our suffering. The the beauty, we talked about it last week when we were talking about, is the God of the Old Testament a God of love? And I talked about the fascinating thing about Jesus was, I think he has the same heart as God, but he shows up. And so it's the whole ice cream thing again. We can talk about God as love by analogy. And then when Jesus shows up, he actually cries himself and weeps. And he actually touches hurting people and he has compassion. And it oozes out of him and he, he embraces them. And that love and that compassion and the fact that I am concerned about suffering. And I hear crying and I respond to that. And when you initiate towards me, even in that weakness, that humility, I will move towards you. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. If you look for me, you will find me. And God comes and God blesses and God's there. And it doesn't matter what he says. The fact is that he is. 
God is, God exists, God is bigger. And then we've got the Father that we so long for. And all of our questions kind of melt into that. And we might still have them, we might go up and down. But the whole idea of the problem of evil as a philosophical question is something that that we really are, are hung up on as to, do I need to go look for a new faith or do I stay with my Christian faith? Is there room for this in my faith? Is kind of solved. And that's really the issue when we come to faith is, is always not, does God exist? But is God trustworthy? Is God reliable? Is his character true? Is he going to do what he said he's going to do? Is he loving? The Jews, when they came out of Israel, the Israelites, when they came out of Israel, saw all these miracles. It's all, they saw the, I mean, think about all the miracles, the, the plagues and then the the water opening up, and then all of a sudden Moses goes to have a thin moment with God on a thin place on the top of Mount Sinai, and all the people start worrying. And then, and then Aaron builds this golden calf, and it wasn't that they stopped believing that God existed. They stopped believing that he was big enough to continue to take care of them. He, he might have been a great get-you-out-of-jail God, but he's not a great get-you-through-the-desert God. And so we need to go maybe look for a new God or a different God that's going to help us in our current situation to get us out of the desert God. And so they build this golden calf. We always take it as they didn't really believe that God existed. Well, they knew he existed. They didn't think he was big enough. They didn't trust him enough. And so they went looking for something else. And I think when we are, are just confronted with our circumstances... And we have to have resolution to our circumstances. Instead of going and talking to God and hearing from God, you know what, I'm big enough. So you wait on me, you trust me, you lean on me. We go look for other things and we begin to to, to distance ourselves from Christianity. And we're like, maybe this will help. And maybe this is my answer. And maybe this behavior or this book or this system or this new thing that's out there or these drugs or this way of numbing or whatever it ends up being, we begin to say, this is going to be the get me out of the desert thing because I don't know if my God's big enough. Brothers and sisters, we've got to learn to run to God. It's not always about fixing our problems. It's not always about getting answers. It's about knowing that God is a big enough God to take care of us and that he's a loving enough God to be concerned with our suffering. Let's pray. Father, those two words, concerned with our suffering, I just pray that we would as a body, as a church, as individuals, as fathers, as mothers, as single people that have questions and are trying to find direction in life, as people that are immobilized, their bodies don't always work the way they, they should anymore, just people whose health is deteriorating, all the different kinds of suffering, Father, just impress upon us that you are concerned with that suffering. And that the greatest need is not answers to our questions. The greatest need is that we somehow encounter you, that we just get a taste of your presence, that we get, a, get to experience it. Now, now we get to see it instead of just hearing about it. And I pray as this church moves forward, just that you would breathe into this church the ability and the knowledge and the insight and the wisdom to know how to go pursue you, to, to know how to get out into nature or in our small groups or with relationships or discipleship, that we'd be able to encourage each other somehow for us to go find you. Because you do say, if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And we commit ourselves to you in Christ's name.